You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today on Vox and Hops, I sit down with the lead singer of Arama Gore. Throughout the episode, we discuss uh, the origins of his death metal growl and how he achieves that tone, what tips he gives uh, to stay healthy on the road. We discuss black metal, how he interprets it, uh, what it means to him. We talk about the Antifa movement and how he feels about that. So uh, open up your pint, sit back, and get ready for the next episode of Vox and Hops. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, how's it going? I'm here with Gore from Arama. Hey, what's up? How you doing today? Good, 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 good. Uh, we, we had a good time at a Heavy Empty Gallo together, day oh, two. Yeah. Oh yeah, we got uh, a little toasted that night. It was worth it, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was, it was great seeing some... Uh, some bands that I would have never thought to actually see and just enjoy it, most likely, even though I would not purchase their CD, of course, but it was uh, it was fun. It was a good time. Are you talking about Limbiscuit? Yes, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. It's, you know, it's a, it's a classic band, I think, from just when we grew up, you know, hearing all these songs. And and, I, and I'll be brightly honest with you, it, it is quite kind of a cheesy band, you know, and cheesy lyrical content. It's, you know, the, the fusion of rap and, you know, it's like kind of you don't, really believe them so much what they're doing but i mean just them doing the whole cover thing and just fucking around they were having fun on stage and i guess that what kind of brought that energy towards the crowd as well so people were just having just as much fun with that so i thought it was cool it's, you sort of have to be like in a state of mind to watch a limp Bizkit show when you're 35 years old yeah sober i would probably would have been like the fuck i'm doing here but nice and wasted it was great What's the best set that you got to see at Heavy MTL? Emperor, of course, um, because like when we got to play with Emperor in Norway, um, it, it was a different context. It was a, I would say it's a bit more, it was intimate. The energy wasn't the same. But for Heavy MTL, when the whole storm just fell right before and they didn't even know they were going to perform, right? And it was like, it took like, I think, 15 minutes off their set list and they still played the full album and it was just great you know the, the the whole context of how everything happened and then they actually got on and just the intro started it, the sound was better uh, i find at least it was a different context but uh, i enjoyed it a lot so yeah it was one of the main reasons why i went again was to go see emperor again so just to put that in context uh, emperor played a heavy mtl and right before their set there was an extreme thunderstorm extreme i was caught in extreme rain we were soaking wet i my cigarette pack was (laughs) drenched uh we were drenched within like i think it lasted like 10 minutes or something like that it wasn't long so it was like super super short rain but it was so heavy rain but uh it was right before they got on stage and it just happened like that and then as they got on stage everything just started and you can see actually the thunder and like the, the lightning all like in the back of like the when you look in the stage to the far right you could see like all that happening while they started performing too as well so it was a good context i think it's, it's just a perfect setup and a background for an emperor concert it perfect one and it made total sense yesterday i turned on my phone i'm looking at uh, the metal news sites metal injection and i saw the announcement of uh, frank's last tour north american yes. tour did you see yes. that yes i did suffocation yes cattle decapitation yes. Crisian, and surreption yes. now there is a fucking lineup that is a this tour I'm, you know i'm definitely trying to see if i can make out to the montreal show um but uh, i i think the, the one of the most memorable uh, Times that I've seen suffocation is when I saw the actual with Mike Smith and like the whole suffocation as we know like you know Guy it was Derek there was Terrence there was you know the singer Frank and there was Mike Smith and I think it was for the Blood Oath album uh, I think they were touring for that so when I saw that I was just you know for me it's just like check off my list you know <laughs> i got to see like you know the original you know the whole of suffocation at least from what i think i think the best era of suffocation was all these members and the, they were in the lineup for that time how do you feel about you know this is a very loaded question me being a replacement singer how do you feel about you know them continuing with a new singer what is your opinion on that personally they're pulling it off i i, I have nothing against that um 
I we we know you know we know him very well. Who's doing the job right now? Yeah, shout so, out to Ricky Myers. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean he's doing a good job, and and I think there there couldn't have been a, a better fit for anyone else than him. It, it made total sense that they actually went with him to do that. So I think uh, I think uh, I saw Kevin do it last year too. And uh, I, I shout out to Kevin. He was really yeah. really fucking yeah, good too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get to see them, so I, I didn't check it out with when Kevin was doing it. Um, so I, I can't really judge, I guess, on that. Um, but Frank is Frank. I mean, you can't, you can't, he's legendary. I mean, when it comes to death metal. You know, it's it's hard for these legacy bands to continue. You know, you, you have to give them props, and uh, I think they should be able to continue. And, you know, me being in Cryptopsy and not being an original member, I'm sort of biased when I say all this. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, it's, it's hard for dudes to continue doing this for, for their whole lives. Oh, for sure. And I think they're at an age where I, I think that, you know, they, they've been there and they've done that. I don't think, I mean, it, it, I guess at a certain point, it kind of becomes more of a repetition than for them just to continue it just you know it's, it becomes repetitive I, I think to a certain point so I guess that maybe that's where you get to a point where you, you've done it all you've seen it you've seen it all and, and, and you've lived your life doing that and I think there's a time where you understand when you need to step out and if they decide to continue they decided to continue you know props for Terrence to continue and pull out another suffocation record so you know it, it's cool to see that they actually you know keep the flame going never stop uh, you know even Frank decided to make that decision of stepping down but I, I understand his point too I guess to a certain point where you you know <laughs> you kind of left I guess with not much options but to be like you know I've been there done that and maybe I don't want to do it anymore I don't want to take the time for my family and to sit down and you know live my life in another way instead of with the you know he spent all his years living his life with suffocation so Vox and Hops is all about yes. beer and metal. Let's, let's. Today we are drinking, our first beer is from Maltstrom. It is an India Extra Pale Lager. So it's like an IPA, and instead of it being an ale, it's a lager. And t- typically, lagers are longer to make, so it adds for a little bit more complex. Let's, let's give her a taste. Okay. Cheers. That's yeah, good. Uh, it's got a, a hazy appearance to it it's got the total ipa uh we're we're going for um yeah i can i can taste the liger uh, it's good yeah. and the you know it's, it's fruity it's tropical yeah but i, I find like it's that. still it's like a little bit more malty than the than the typical trendy ipas that are on the market now it's definitely not a new england ipa it's more of the uh, more almost more of like a west coast ipa but still being very tropical it's delicious if you had to describe this beer as a person any type of person in the world, male or female, any walk of life, who would this beer be? Do I have to give a name of a person? Or? You, you could, or it doesn't really have to be a name, but it'd be interesting if it was a name. It doesn't have to be a person you know. It could be like a made-up person. Like I don't know. I really don't know. I would see it as a ballsy male. It's a ballsy male. Okay. It's got, it's got a lot of character. Um... It's got a balance. Uh, I think would say I would say the key word for this is 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 uh, you know you know how sometimes an IPA can be quite spicy and it's not over spicy. It's got the fruitiness and the balance in between with all that. So yeah, it's quite a ballsy, fruity, neutral, got character. Malmstrom um, just celebrated their one year anniversary, I believe. So this is a straight up Quebec homebrew beer. That's right. That's the, the only way I, I do it. Do you remember what your very first experience with beer was like? Oh God, I don't. I, with beer, I think the first drink I've ever had, I was like fourteen. I think it was a. Uh, God, you remember those, like, wasn't those tornado things? What were they called? Um, Boomerang. Boomerang. I had the yellow one. I think it's a lemon, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I, was, I, was, I was like 14, and I had like six of them. <laughs> and I got wasted, <laughs> and I threw up everywhere because it's so sugary as a beer. Uh, it was horrible. So it was like my first beer experience was horrible. Even getting drunk, my first experience was with vodka, and that was horrible as well. I didn't really like it. I was more a guy that was smoking pot. I was into the more of the drugs than the alcohol. But uh, as I got older, I started getting a big taste for alcohol and going more for it. Yeah, Tilnad, uh, in the 
I'd say late nineties here in Quebec was a, there was a big, uh, fad of these sugary malty beers the boomerang the tournade which was like the quebec version of boomerang and uh many uh, many of my early drunken experience were definitely on boomerang the the fruit punch one so when you you threw it all up later you were just vomiting like neon neon pink colors. and purple and vomit with full like of nasty one had, foam yeah one had like this kind of berry one it was like this purple red tint it was oh it was horrible it burned it was it was a horrible next day but you know you woke up and you fucking did the same thing again for some reason it was more palatable to us yeah i i guess it was just you know it was a i i guess when, when it came to like you know beers you know having like let's say a, a labat 50 for example i'll give like a good you know quebec beer you know uh at first, if I'm pretty sure if I would have had that before any other beer, I probably wouldn't have liked it. You know, the fact that there was kind of that fruity flavor to it, it kind of like, you know, you're like, oh, is this what beers really like? And you start drinking it. And then you find out that that's just really bad quality beer because they have to flavor it with flavors because it's not really good beer. But uh, no, I just don't know. I, I guess it was popular and everyone was just going with that. And it was available everywhere when I was drinking with my friends. So I guess that was pretty much just there for me to take. So and we knew it worked. Yeah. And it, it, it got the job done. Oh, it got us drunk. And the next day was horrible. But, you know, like I said, you, you got up and the next day after you felt like shit and you still went for a night too. <laughs> I'm still on the boomerangs. That, 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 that was our weekends. Do you remember what your first craft beer that like opened your mind and your palate to the craft beer scene here in Montreal? My girlfriend works at a place called Brewtopia. Uh, they they make good craft beer. Uh, they have this phenomenal Scotch ale that they make, and I love it. And, and I'm not one for like kind of thicker, more consistent beers like a Guinness, for example. Um, but this beer was just off the wall great 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 so um i don't think it's my first craft beer but god i i uh, that's that's many beers ago (laughs) 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 gotta think i gotta think about the time that i had my first craft beer i don't know i was always a guy that you know just you know cheaper you know didn't bother me as well you know as long as i got drunk that was the fun part about it so uh, i was more of a wine drinker than a beer okay yeah yeah I, I really tried a lot of homemade wine. My dad makes homemade wine, so I mean that's we're we're really big into the wine. So I, I like that. It's just the next day is really bad. So it depends how far you go into it. I yeah, I'm two bottles in. You're pretty you're pretty far. Tell me about what you what you were like when you were a kid, high school troublemaker. Yeah. I was quite a rebellious kid. I, I guess I had a lot of anger for some reason. I don't know. I had both parents in my life. Uh, all the time it was never much of a conflict with that kind of stuff i don't think i had family issues or any of that stuff i just uh, was just a violent kid i guess you know i like to cause trouble mayhem chaos and as i got older i guess you know i started calming down i guess but as a kid i was a troublemaker i would steal i was a pretty bad kid but overall i was a good kid too you know i was not always a bad kid I chose my moments. Um, with my parents, I was always good. I never had a reason to be rebellious in that way. But, uh, you know, I, I was the first kid to start, you know, going gothic in the family. I was the first kid to listen to heavy metal, or devil worshipping, my mom would call it, music. And then I would draw, like, pentagrams and do all these kinds of stuff that my mom was just like, oh, God, like, you're, oh, it's only you in the family that's like this. So we're, we're quite a big family, too, so, and I'm the only one in the family that listens to heavy metal. No one in my family. Not a single person does, so. What made you do the shift towards, you know, the, the gothic, the... I, I don't know. I, I think it just came natural. It, it just, uh, I guess, I've always had a soft side for... Uh, dark stuff dark music and it just naturally came to me so i really never had any conscious thought towards like you know what made me go towards that it's just i guess i had this strong fascination drawn to me more likely and then me to it you know so i i i guess like some music i guess maybe could have influenced that 
Uh, I, I was heavy into the Cradle of Filth era of the earlier stuff. And uh, I really liked that whole kind of gothic vibe that they gave with their music. and Musically or imagery-wise? Both. Both. I, I think it's very present in their music. You can hear it. In the, it's very different than, I guess, what other black metal bands were doing at that time. They had just this core of, like, and it had the evil sound as well, but you can hear it in the music that it was there was some kind of haunting sound to it, kind of dark in a different way, you know. So I guess that was part of my transition, I guess, being goth. But I guess it was just was in me just naturally. I guess that were you raised? What you you said that your mother considered that you were devil worshiping. <laughs> Were you raised in the church or? Yes. Yes. I think that's a big transition to, I, I, I think that helped as well. Uh, my father was very Catholic and uh, used to force me to go to church all the time. And I hated it with a passion. I didn't, I didn't believe anything of it. I, I didn't like the way it was run, the energies, the people, um, these people asking for forgiveness for <laughs> For things they've done bad and think that you know god's gonna make them say okay well it's all gone away and not do anything themselves this you know if i pray everything will go away and i'm a good person now it's just you know just life doesn't work that way i guess so um i guess it was a big part of my transition into my goth era as well but um as much as i don't physically dress gothic today i think it's still part of me as well today as it was back then I just maybe had the hair and the, the eyeliner and the contacts to go with it, more likely. What, uh, in high school, was there like a clique of, or a crew of gothic kids, or were you the gothic kid? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, we were two. Okay, okay. <laughs> it was me and my friend. We were like the only two goths. Is that what made school. you connect, or is it, did you grow into that together? Kind of grew, grew that yeah, together, more likely. Yeah, we both liked the same kind of music. We both were fascinated into something that was dark. And it just was a natural transition for us. Uh, we both discovered heavy metal together. So it was like our transition era of like, you know, the, the 90s where you, you're listening to bands like Korn. A bit more of the new metal. Slipknot, Mudvayne. And we just kind of like... I always had a fascination, like, I want something heavier. And once I get heavy... What, what was that band? Was it was a Cradle? No. The first heavy band that I heard was actually Obituary World Demise. I bought a record uh, from them. I was like 12 years old. And I was at a flea market, and I was just scrolling through these CDs, and there's just a bunch of crap. And I picked up this, and I was Obituary, and I looked, and it was like Apocalypse kind of artwork and i was like oh, this seems like it's something i would dig in i threw in the cd and i loved it immediately and i was just like oh this is heavy and then i would go into deeper and then i discovered uh, to serve man cattle decapitation which i think is the most grotesque album i've ever heard in my life i, I still to this day i i think it's just it's too hard to listen to i back then i loved it when i listen to it today and i'm like damn was I really into that? You know, that's, that's a really heavy record. <laughs> Lyrically and everything about it was just so. It, as time went, I went into heavier, and then I, I fell in love with D Side. I thought that was one of my all-time heaviest bands. The vocals and the just the down palm muting all the time is just in your face. I really like that. So I would just kind of grow deeper into getting heavier and heavier, and then I kind of maybe transitioned into when I started listening to Cradle I guess I went more for like the atmospheric stuff stuff that had keyboards and then I found out about actually Demo Warrior quite late actually with the Unthroned Darkness Triumphant album um, but yeah when, when did you start like getting into bands and uh, you know start getting to that aspect of your life I was two years old <laughs> Seriously, I was like two, three years old. Uh, I just started walking. My mom used to have this old Walkman. And my mom's more into like kind of Elvis Presley, Bon Jovi, Cher. And she had this cassette of Bon Jovi. And I was like three years old. And I used to like go in my mom's dresser. And I knew like where she hid it. 
every time she'd put it away and it was always in the same place and I was just walking and I'm learning to walk and I'm figuring everything out in life right but the first thing I figured out was to grab the Walkman put on headphones and press play on a cassette player so it was just natural I wow yeah. yeah that was my first I had my first Megadeth t-shirt and I had a Metallica t-shirt I was like seven years old metal up your ass t-shirt and it has the glow in the glow in the dark in the really? back yeah. yeah I was seven years old and I had that yeah, I, so, so your so. parents couldn't have been very surprised when you moved uh, towards very, more extreme dark bands if they're, they're they're giving you Metallica shirts and stuff at Megadeth shirts at seven, oh, they weren't really giving it to me. It was I was just kind of a curious kid, and I was like always like a younger kid, friends with older guys. Okay, so I, I guess that helped to figure out music as well too. So, um, but uh, like I said, I mean, I grabbed the Bon Jovi. I mean, like I'm not saying Bon Jovi is a heavy band, but I mean it was like a quick transition like, mm-hmm. in life. You know, like most people listened like whatever's playing on the radio. And I was listening to hard rock immediately. So, what, what, what's, what album was that, Bon Jovi? Oh, it was an old one. I really don't remember. It's like as old as it can be. Because uh, I used to rock as a kid. My dad used to yeah, the, yeah. the Slippery When Wet. That was, that, was, that was the one that got me when I was a kid. Uh, it, it was in the 80s, late 80s, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, With all yeah. The hits there. It's, probably that, it's probably that one, but it was like 89. Okay, yeah. I think uh, the slippery one wet might be a little older than that. When did you start playing in bands? And what 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 got you into that? How did that transition happen from being a fan to becoming? I was fourteen, I believe. But vocally, uh, I was eight, nine. Okay. I started doing vocals. I would just you know like bands like Corn, for example, and stuff like I like to sing to a lot, and I would practice a lot with that. So uh, vocally for that, but my first band was Poison Oath, and I was 14, 15 when, when we joined that. So. And you played vocal? You sang? I actually played guitar okay. originally. I was playing guitar, and then I had a work accident and uh, lost a finger, of course, hence gore finger. And uh, yeah, and I immediately just decided, you know, you know what? I'm just going to focus a lot more on just doing just vocals, I guess. And uh, then put the guitar down. I, I just put it aside, I guess, and not made it like a priority thing when, when I wanted to start my band. Uh, at that time, I was just like, you know, I'm just going to focus on the vocals. We already had a guitarist, too. I was just trying in the band. I wasn't wasn't going to be officially the guitarist, but I was uh, playing guitar before I decided to do vocals uh, for Poison Elf. Did you want to be a singer, or did like screaming come more naturally to you? Very naturally. Um, it was the thing I was more interested. Like I said, like when I got into like you know I wanted to go as heavy as possible, um, and it was the same for my vocals. So I learned immediately to to do uh, screaming, and when I did screaming, uh, the first thing uh, I did was just throw in a CD and practice and practice and practice. I'd practice about eight nine hours a day every day after I come back from school and just my dad was he was busy with work and he would always come home around eight eight o'clock nine o'clock at night and I finished school around three and I would just immediately put throw on a CD and just blare the speakers as loud as I can go and just scream and practice and practice figured out what was my weaknesses what I was doing wrong correct them practice them here I am today. <laughs> Can you explain to me somehow your, your screaming technique? No idea. Everyone asks me, what's my technique? I cannot explain shit for that. Um, it, it, I don't know how I do it. Honestly, I don't. It, it's just like, you know, it, I try to think about like, what's the way and how can I explain it? I don't know. I just do it. And it just like it's it's so difficult for me to explain that. I've been asked this so many times, and I just still today I still can't figure out how I'm doing it. I'm just doing it. You just open your mouth, and this comes out. And it just came out naturally. Uh, I I was just practicing, and you know, yeah, I would scratch my vocal cords sometimes, and and I know when to push it and when not to push it. I, it really comes from the lungs. I, I think that was a big thing that I, I was having weaknesses in, in, at first because, like, I was always pushing 
and pushing and then I was scraping my vocal cords and then I realized like, you know, there, there's a balance between that. Like, you know, like the wider you open up your mouth, the higher you can go get that note, the lower, the lower your note can go as well. So I was just working around with a lot of that. And I don't know, my technique, it's kind of like you, you breathing out more, a bit more like, <laughs> and then I would just kind of try to pronounce words as pushing out and by using my mouth to kind of like shape. hit those yeah, shape shape those notes that I'm, I'm going for so I guess, I guess if I were to explain my technique maybe that's it but still I don't, I don't know there's not a precise word I can find for that I just I just do it man and how do you keep it healthy on the road your voice um, drink a lot of water uh, honey's good I use honey, um, not to use cold water or warm, like, you know, or hot water is to have warm water, much water as possible. Um, there's a couple kind of like neck movements you can do, um, eat nuts, peanuts work. They kind of, they, uh, or, or cornflakes. Really? Kind of, this kind is of, the, the, yeah. first, the first I hear of this one. Yeah. Because it, it helps to kind of roughen your vocal cords a bit. Because, okay. you know, it's kind of scratchy in a bit, you know, drink with water and do that a bit. And, and it helps. Yeah, it helps. Is there like an overlying theme when you write lyrics for Arama? You write lyrics for Arama, I'm no, assuming. No, I do not. Okay, then. I clarify that. Uh, <laughs> I do not write lyrics for Arama. It's uh, Kaseos, the drummer. Okay. That's something you're comfortable with? Definitely. Um, because we kind of we kind of talk together a bit. But kind of like, you know, if I, if I, he needs help with something, or for example, uh, I can always like sometimes or subjects, ideas like that, you know, I can contribute to, um, but I am not the main writer. Um, I focus a lot more on the guitar. Uh, I do a lot of guitar parts and write guitars and uh, structure guitar. Sometimes even when a guitarist has a riff, for example, I'd be like, oh, you know, and I'll throw in ideas. I work more musically with Arama than lyrically. On the upcoming record that's coming, it's going to be kind of a, a world of both. I'm going to contribute a bit more to uh, something lyrically, but the, the foundation comes from Joe, yeah. Okay, and because he has like a a clear vision of what he wants the band to say and represent through those words. Yeah, well, we we both down on the same page for stuff uh, on the lyrical content, um, but he's just the one that you know kind of has that flow of like you know when it comes out he knows what to say and where to say it and sometimes he'll explain it to me and then I'll come out with something with it you know but I've never really sat down uh, let's say and wrote a song from A to Z you know there could be something that he has already written and I'll, I'll read it and, and and something will come to my mind and then I'll write it down what I wrote down and then he'll he'll kind of revise it and see if it works for him and if it works for both of us and then we go with it and if it doesn't then we figure out ways to make it best as possible that must be refreshing to be able to bounce ideas off you each other like that yeah yeah it's different um it's a it's it's a collective thing which i i think is you know uh, a brotherhood you know part of a band for us to just sit down and like you know put aside your ego you know and just not criticize something and to understand something and to try things and to to mold something the best as possible instead of just like you know well well i wrote the lyrics and uh that's what it is yeah yeah and that's it <laughs> yeah, but like you know i could probably have some good ideas too you know and, and maybe what my idea that i came out with is what fits it best and i think that's the goal for us is always like we we try to like 100 percent fit everything the best and always go for that goal and yeah if it works that way it works that way and if he decides to uh, write the whole lyrics and it turns out that it's great and it's working and it makes sense then he writes all the whole lyrics and, and that's it and i'm fine i'm fine with that yeah. how did the whole arama project come to be joe uh well me and joe were actually in a previous band we did this project that was working with the careful jeunesse which is a, a program that helps like i guess younger kids but we were still 17. I was 18 at that time. And um, it was kind of like paid to do music, right? So we were paid to come up with this project, this idea um, by the government. And uh, we had a weekly salary for, I think, something like four or five months. And we had to perform a concert and a record as well. 
And that was the fun part. Was that I, like, I did not know this. Yeah. Uh, it was called Cluster Eyes. Um, we had, uh, it was a, quite a diversified members in the band. It were like, everyone in that group was like people from like pop and from like rock to like all extreme bands. Like we were four that kind of connected together that were all in extreme bands. One was Ben uh, from the band Slaves, some hardcore band back in the days. They used to be in the Montreal scene quite a bit, but uh, they died out. Um, also, they had Chris from Endless Curse. And uh, Joe, who was playing in Failure to Comply at that time. And that was in Poison Oath. And we just joined this project. And that's how I met Joe. It was, uh, you know, I was paid to go to this place and meet these people. And we just connected immediately and uh, started working on this project. The lyrical content was based on the apocalypse. And, uh, yeah, we had to write all the lyrics and write everything. And just, it was a nine to five job but nine to five going in and just jamming smoking pot and playing music so i was like <laughs> I, I thought it was really cool and that, that's how we did that and uh i i guess that's where it started and then we stopped the project it was just a project that was just you know i, I guess for fun we didn't want to take it to another level and then we went and separately and did our own things and joe uh was going through other bands and you know, and another band seemed to fail again. And he was like, okay, he's like, fuck it. I'm fed up with this. And he's, like, I'm going to find the people that I want to work with. And we're just going to do a record. And initially I wasn't supposed to be in Arima. Uh, it was only supposed to do the record. Uh, cause I had two other bands at that time. I was with poison oath and war ignition. And we were picking up war ignition was picking up a lot more than uh, poison oath at that time. And I, I just found it hard to, throw in a third band you know it was just like you know i was like oh, i like the f a little too much memorization of lyrics here you know and i was working full time at a, at, a, at a job to find the time and to fit everything in it was a kind of a hectic schedule and then uh, i decided uh, one time i didn't want to do these two other bands anymore and i i felt like you know joe's proposition for his band felt like it fit me most into my personal taste so then yeah and i told him i called him up one day and i says yeah let's let's do this uh, let's see where it goes and here we are today 10 years later wow and so when did the transition happen from from goth into like more black metal because it's more symphonic but Irma's not necessarily like a symphonic black metal band it's more like a death metal black metal band in my opinion um it's uh, if I showed you the sequences, clearly just for rain through mortality. I mean, if ever you get the chance with Chris, just ask Chris you know, if he ever has it. Like, just be like, just mute everything and just listen to the sequences. It's a hell of a lot more orchestrated than people think. I think because once we mold everything together, it kind of like you can't really hear what really is going on. <laughs> if it's just the keyboards, you, there's, there's a lot. There's like, especially rain. Rain was very like, uh, we had Joe, uh, from Silverwing studios. Yeah. 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 From Blackguard. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to him. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he did the keyboards for us, uh, kind of last minute. Cause we had another guy that was, uh, doing it. And it originally uh, was a friend of Chris's actually. He referred us to him. And we went to work with him, and he had a kid, and it was he got a new job, and it was too much for him to do, and he and he, and he had to pull out. And he had three songs in that he did that we kept from him that he completed, and we're so we're going to keep these ones, and the rest we'll do with Joe. But when we got Joe to do it, I think became a lot more orchestrated in that sense because i mean we know it's how he just, works it's yeah. just his it's background his style too. and yeah. his style and i think that's what made our uh, i guess our symphonic sound more likely uh, than compared to thesis or Erkala. and Erkala was like more just straight in keyboard just you know it wasn't overly uh, a bit like emperor you know where it's not like over orchestration or it's like, just like a texture a texture that's being added yeah. if you could book a dream tour for Arima. Arima and two other bands. Who would be on that tour? Dead or Alive? Uh, yes. Yeah. All right. All right. Bathory. Bathory would be something I would definitely like to see live. That, so that would be, that'd be cool to do. And uh, I think one that makes sense 
for Arama, um, especially me and Joe, personally, uh, would be Cradle of Filth. So, yeah, it would be Cradle of Filth and Bathory. That, that would be a sick, be, uh, sick tour. Yeah. That would be a nice tour, yeah. That would be huge. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it would. It would sell out every night, pretty much. Out of all the gigs that you've played, what is the best Arama show? I'd say recent one we did in Norway, the Inferno Fest. The whole context and everything that was with that, it was a different, it was our first time in Europe. Energy was different. The city was different. Everything was different. And we were so used to touring the States that at some time, uh, it's not because we didn't have any good shows in the States. We had tons of good shows in the States. But it just, there's something magical about that place, I guess, that just connected for us. And we had a really good crowd. Uh, we played very well. And we played three songs, uh, four songs. Yes, four songs, yes. Um, but, like, we just didn't focus on the crowd but we just were in the zone and the light show was really good and i really liked like how the crowd was a lot more like attentive to like the music itself and not always thrashing so it was different for us because we're a bit more of a i guess a heavier band than most of the bands that were there there were some that were a lot more atmospheric i guess or that kind of energy uh, the bands were giving Aroma just gave something different, I guess, and it was a bit more punishing, but the crowd wasn't really like head, like we're like doing the moshing and all that kind of stuff, you know, and it was, it was different, you know, but uh, it was a good show for us. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. yeah Inferno Fest in Norway, uh, for those of you listening, is uh, probably the biggest festival in Norway, yeah. and it is uh, primarily a black metal, focused on black metal music, and being in Norway in the home of black metal, you know, it's, 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 it's that's, that's, that's what I was saying. The, starting, the magic part. Yeah. <laughs> the starting point of black metal. So that must've been interesting to perform there for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was our first time in Europe. First, it was actually my first time in a plane too. I've never traveled in a plane. Yeah. So this is my first time witnessing a plane, sleeping in airports, which sucks. So for the future bands that, you know, to do or want to do the traveling to Europe and stuff like that. Yeah, the traveling part sucks, but everything else is good. Yeah, once you're there, you're there. It's great. I, I always dread the airplane part, and then once I'm there, I just fall on autopilot and just just it's sort the of whole, it's zone the whole out. Waiting game. Shit, we we got like we had a delay with the plane on our way back, and like we had to stay an extra night in Norway, which was I was I was, I was okay with that, and I was like, yeah, the hotel was really good um so it was it was a really nice place and everything was great about that next day we go and we're stuck in portugal for 32 hours so it was long we were in an airport and we're, oh, it was so long it was so long and because of the time we showed up there if we were to get a hotel um we would have to leave by 11 anyways that day and it's like well i gotta take the hotel well i'm there till 11 the next day and my flight was at nine o'clock yeah, that yeah, night. No so I was like, there's no point. So we had to stay in the airport and sleep on really crappy chairs, but it was worth it though. Yeah, you, you remember those four songs. Yes. Keep that in mind. Why four songs? Is it good? Well, we had a set frame, uh, you know, then we had a time frame, I guess for the set that we were told 45 minutes. And since we always choose to do metempsychosis, the 10 minute song. Okay. Yeah. So it takes a big gap. And then we, with the songs we've chose, I guess, uh, we just two songs were 20 minutes with the transitions that we had, the, the kind of intro, outro in the songs. And uh, we decided to do, uh, for the first time, we played Saunter uh, for the first time. That was, uh, that was the first time we ever did that. It's just an instrumental song that we have in Rain. It's just straight up, straight up, just no vocals, nothing. And we kind of... It was all the sequences too, so we were like, well, let's just, let's figure out something and jam to it and make it like part of like an intro. And it's kind of like a battle song pretty much, you know, going to war, marching kind of intro. So yeah, we decided to do that for the first time. We've never, never ever played that one live. So that was cool to do that one. It's like taking a gamble. Yeah. We were, a we were huge like, festival. If, yeah. We were like, see if this works and... Yeah, it's just kind of like, you know, the whole marching kind of like that pounding sound that it gave, man. It was just like, it, man, it pumped all of us up, you know, and we were like, oh, we're ready. You know, 
let's 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 do this you know Amazing. it was like going to war you know that's all i can say what is your best tour story like a story that you know you come home from tour and something amazing has happened that no one will believe and you can't wait to share it's more just like i guess i don't i don't know if there was anything really crazy I would say we we had some funny stuff happen. One of which where we uh, go to we're in Fredericton and uh, we're playing this little bar called uh, the Capital on a Monday night, and it was the last show of that weekend run we did in the Maritimes uh, when we came back from the Abigail William tour, and <laughs> I was discovering this new smoke machine, and uh, it was quite intense, so I, I didn't know the intensity of it that well, and. Uh, Smoked the fucking place up. Had the firemen come and they no opened way. up. Yeah, yeah. They they, <laughs> they came and everyone left and it was it was so awkward because we're we're performing and we're still <laughs> we're, we're still playing and then everyone on just leaving and I was like, fuck, are we that bad? Man? <laughs> Do we fucking suck or what? What is going on? And I'm still headbanging, uh, and I can notice that it, it, it's quite smoky in here. And the bar guy is just like raising up his horns. He's just—he didn't care what was going on. He was just like, "This is so awesome. This is so metal." And then I just had the the fireman come in front of me, looking at me like, "What the fuck? You know, you guys do so we're, we're still performing." <laughs> it was it was it was in March sometime. Yeah, mid March. So it's still cold. It's out. still cold outside, and I have my costume on. And she's like, yeah, you guys got to get out. We got to evacuate the smoke. So we're going outside. And as we're going outside, everyone's just there. And they're all chanting. And they're all freaking out. And they're all like, man, that's the coolest, the most memorial show I've ever seen, man. A band come and smoke the fucking place. And they're still fucking playing. And they don't fucking care. That's amazing. I was like, well, it's not because I don't fucking care. I wasn't really sure what the fuck was going on either. So I was still, uh, my, my set was still going on. No one told me to stop. I didn't stop. I was just like, it's going. It's going. And once, once you're there, you're there. You just keep it going. What keeps you sane on tour? Relaxation, I guess. I try to as much as possible. I try so much, man. And, and sometimes the party sometimes can get a little hectic, chaotic at times. Uh, I, I think crazy party times that we had was with Panzerfaust, the tour we had with Panzerfaust, and those guys. Uh, Shout out to Panzerfaust. Love you, boys. Yeah. Oh, God. Sudbury, we trashed a hotel, so that wasn't... It was a good time, but I mean, you know, I felt bad for the guy. Mark, poor, <laughs> poor Mark Howey. We're, we're sorry, Mark, but... You know. Oh, he's chill, yeah. Shout out, shout yeah, out to yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, the asylum. He's, he's, yeah, yeah, the asylum. We trashed it. But, you know, he, he was all... He was... He was he was in for it as well. He was all he was all about it too. He was just like, oh, I get it, man. So it was cool. Um, so yeah, yeah. There has been a lot of just like party situations, but like uh, Fredericton was quite crazy. Um, driving through Flint was fucking insane, but nothing bad happened. So yeah, at least that. Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan. Yeah. You don't pull over there. No, people don't go there, and we went there. Well, you played in Flint. Yeah, we did. We at the machine shop. Sold out show at Mushroom Head. It really? was fantastic. Yeah. There was uh, 560 people, I think. It was sold out. It was insane. Uh, the bar owner was just insane. Everyone's insane there. It's just such an insane place. Um, we had, like, this little trailer in the back. It was so ghetto for, like, our, our little, you know, green room. It was just this trailer that was our own you know and it's just like we went there hanging out with j-man we were drinking with j-man just you know shooting the shit but uh yeah it was uh, it was insane but nothing crazy like you know knowing of what place this is it was nothing bad or anything happened but because uh, yeah, it is supposed to be the most dangerous city oh it is definitely of and, the states oh yeah you can see how ghetto it is yeah <laughs> it's totally dangerous and you can feel that and the pe- when you talk to the people uh attitude i guess is a bit different that they're very cautious of everything and they watch everything and everyone's got a gun on them everyone's you know the violence can happen by a snap of a fingers in a place like that but um, everyone was there to have a good time, listen to metal and headbang. That's what happened, and nothing else happened. So we were happy about that. But uh, yeah, and we also played in Compton too. So really, uh, yeah, straight up in Compton. Different crowd, different crowd, heroin addicts everywhere. 
it was a uh, fucked up. We were yelling at <laughs> the guy, Jeff of Abigail, was yelling at this crackhead place because we were parked in front of his apparently reserved parking for his, d- <laughs> <laughs> his people who are purchasing uh, drugs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we were in Compton, we were told every time we were going to the van, uh, we were handed a knife and said, like, keep, keep cautious of this and be aware. You were handed That's, a knife? Every time. Every from time. the club? No, not from the club, but our friends, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah that were there. Uh, they would just give us a knife and just be like, be cautious when you go out there. Like, just anything can happen, you know. We're like, just going to the van from the venue. And we were literally, like, parked pretty much in front of the venue. So, yeah. So, I mean, those are the craziest places that, you know, something like of a tour story could have happened, but nothing happened. So That's good. That's, that's a good, good thing. That's a good thing because they were very dangerous areas. But, you know, we could have had some good stories there, too, though. But, uh, yeah. There we go. Who knows? Maybe we might go back in the future. Our next beer today is the Russian Imperial Stout, Stout Imperial Russe, from Brasserie Dunham, which comes from Dunham, Quebec, which is a tiny little town on the South Shore. And uh, this is one of my go-to beers because it is always constantly delicious. It never changes in quality because Dunham is just that good. It's a nine percent beer, and uh, let's let's hear our uh, let's see what what it's like there. It smells uh, sweet and almost a little bit like coffee. That's the thing I got from it. I got like when I was smelling it, I get that that kind of coffee smell, but it, you don't get so much the coffee taste. But yeah, it's it's sweet, but it's not like sh- it's sugary. And all for a nine percent beer, it's not that overpowering, which is good. It's um, it's malty. It's not like the the mozet chocolatey. Do you have like a local favorite brewery? Or beer in general? I like a lot of Belgian beer. Okay. So it's not like a local brewery. So Is there one like, in particular or like... Not really. No. No, I like I like kind of white beers. Okay. So like the Belgian white style, the Heffen... Yep, yep, yep. Or the Whole Garden, which is, you know, yeah, more yeah. of the commercial, I guess, in, in their beers. I used to love it back in the day. You'd go into the bar and you'd order a whole garden. They'd serve it to you in that huge glass. Huge glass. Which was really a selling point for me. But I'm sure it's just the same amount of beer as in a normal glass. But me being a little kid, I was like, oh my God, it's so much beer. such a big beer. I'm so happy. I've stolen one. I have it at home. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about black metal. All right. Me being from the death metal world, I don't know that much about it. So I'm hoping that you can shed some light on it for me. How do you explain black metal to people who are not familiar with the genre? It's radical. It's chaotic. It's a lifestyle. I think that's uh, I think that's the difference between black metal to me and uh, death metal. For example, it's it's quite a lifestyle. I guess in more of like a lyrical view and everything, and how like I guess freedom and liberation is kind of a key subject usually in black metal bands which well it's usually on a satanic agenda but I mean it's it's all relevant to the same thing of it being freedom Uh, it's opposition of many things against a lot of things could be politics religion racism anything Uh, black metal has always been kind of a more atmospheric kind of music that you feel more I guess maybe more like kind of focused on emotion more than you know like just speed and technique I mean most bands like Burzum for example I mean have the shittiest recording sound ever but the atmosphere and the feeling and the emotion that's give out from something like that it's it's it can be repetitive even i mean some of the riffs it's it's the same riff for like <laughs> four or five minutes and you know in death metal you, you've already had like maybe seven riffs in that time frame <laughs> so i i guess black metal i guess to me it, it's at least to me it is in that way it may be different to other people as well but yeah i view black metal as more of a lifestyle than just a musical genre i guess you mentioned the, the recording quality of like Burzum, for example. 
what, what is it about the early black metal recordings that are so sonically peculiar? You know, I've tried to get into it's, black metal. It always sort of just puts me off the production. I guess it's kind of more that kind of I don't give a fuck attitude, you know, that rebellious kind of youth against something, you know, like not to go into the, the path of the mainstream and to have like opposition towards that. I think, you know, like, you know, for example, the 80s they had like all the electronic drums and all this kind of stuff and triggers started happening even in the 90s triggers were kind of becoming something clean recording and i guess going against that you know kind of gave it that kind of sound and that grimness i guess to the to music that when people hear it it's very eerie it's very draining you know it's 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 hard to understand it's harsh it's it's raw it's chaotic you know it's not making so much sense to some people um it's primitive i guess and and that's what i would consider a lot of black metal is do you think that there are such thing as true black metal bands no 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 i i think black metal is just black metal there's no something that's superior to others I think that's just part of people's ego if they're trying to like, you know, this is what it really is. It's just, you know, you got the, the elite crowd that just really think that like so the Burzum is real black metal. This is not. Black metal has evolved. It kind of spread to the masses, which means that it's living and it's still there, which is a good thing. So it's not dead. So if that's the way it goes and that's the way it goes. And I'm happy by that. I mean, Arima, for example, is a band I think that takes elements of what I would consider that most people would be like, oh, well, that's not what traditional black metal does. But we don't care. I think that's what most people don't understand what maybe black metal is, is that like it's, you know, for example, I don't know, you can listen to bands like The Devil's Blood. I think that band's even more black metal than some black metal bands call themselves black metal. You know what I mean? So it doesn't bother you that bands like Def Haven is like claiming uh, that they're claim. black metal. Well, you, you, um, you know, I think that I wouldn't call it black metal. I think that they have elements of black metal. You know, for example, I, I consider Arama the same. You know, I don't consider Arama a whole black metal band. When people are like, oh, black metal, you know, Arama's black metal. I'm like, no. <laughs> you 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 think it is it's black metal, but uh, because we represent elements of, and I think even in Def Haven, you got some riffs. You'll listen to the guitar riff, and that's maybe totally something a, a black metal band would use as well. But they'll look at the album cover and kind of that, I guess what people are calling it that hipster vibe, I guess. But I never thought they were black metal either. So the their lyrical content is maybe not based on a satanic agenda like most black metal bands do what, what do you think about the, the Antifa movement I think it's stupid I think it's fashion people anti-fascist people acting in fascist ways which is just horrible I, I think they're just pushing it a little too much and, and I think like you know like these people are judging something from what media is covering or whatever some bullshit somebody's stirring up you know like oh this person is a, a racist person or this and this is that uh, they're you know especially with the black metal movement they're using political and religious and racist stuff into black metal when black metal is totally the opposition of that and which makes no sense to me and yeah, you you could have some bands that do represent that but you know that's their agenda and that's fine it, you know if people support that people support that and if you guys don't then don't that's it plain and simple i think just you know spitting on other people uh for what they believe in is not a better example of something so what about like would you tour with a band that has been a target in the past? I don't know because I'm not I'm not one to like judge people. I understand what you mean, but like you know what I mean. Like if they were kind of viewed, I guess, or maybe they had certain things that would have maybe tied with that. No, I don't think I would not do that because of that. I would I would try to look deeper into things 
And then if I see the guy is a real asshole and he is that type of person, well, then I just fucking punch him in the face and I don't care. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to stop a tour because of that. You know what I mean? On, on like a business aspect side of it, you know, like tours have been canceled, shirts were printed, visas were bought. Is that something that would, you know, be, would you be more wary to tour with this band because you're not sure if your investment is going to go nowhere is more my thought. Yeah. Mm. An investment is investment, regardless uh, if you're touring with any band in the U.S. For certain, <laughs> there's just visas. You can get denied for anything, regardless if it's the band or not. You know, it's it's just it's a lottery ticket, man. Mm. You win or you lose, man. Motorhead. <laughs> so I, I don't know, you know. Why, why do you think there's so much negative attention on black metal or around black metal? So this, I year? think it's tied to that more likely. Yeah media seems to like I guess push out a lot more of the fact that maybe black metal represents what they consider it, it's representing racism or stuff that it ties out. I mean Marduk man their fascination with World War 2 doesn't make them you know Nazis Nazis yeah, yeah. you know what I mean and, and I think that's just like the stir of the media is just mm. stirring something like this you, you said know, like, like Lemmy yeah you said Motorhead for Lemmy's house was full he's wearing the Iron Cross of Nazi paraphernalia and, and actually if you, and if you know about the swastika the actual swastika is a symbol that comes from native language way before actually it's all these symbolisms and like all these stuff like you know some people will like it's like oh they see that they're like they associate it with that I'm like yeah did you know that people were using this way before they were using that so it's like people view it as that because that's bad you know it's because people, I think, are not so open-minded and don't, like, really understand that, like, symbolism can go really deep and far, you know? And there's so much to that. There's certain things that will just never come back, though, because of what the Nazis did, which is, you know, the swastika is not something that we can use anymore. No, no, That's no. never going to become no, popular because, again. because, yeah, yeah, no, no. The Charlie Chaplin mustache. No, be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's out, you know? You can never show up the at a party with, with a Hitler stash anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. That makes sense. And, and I understand that, you know, and I respect people who are, you know, I think against that. But um, I'm just saying, like, for example, like, you know, me as a person, like, if I see someone with that today, I probably know what he's associating with. Because if I ask him about, you know, what does that mean? And I question him, he's probably not going to give me the answer that I know of, which is like, yeah, where does this come from? Where does this, yeah, what is this, thing? you know? If I see a native guy wearing this symbol, I'm not going to be like, he's a Nazi. I'm going to be like, eh, well, it's because he knows where it's coming from, you know, and I, and I will think about it because there's there's a deepness to it than him just representing a swastika in that way because he would be like, yeah, well, they, f- they stole it from us, you know, <laughs> like other things or, you know, so, yeah, but no, for sure, like, if you see someone today wearing a swastika, you, you're, you're usually associated to that, which is stupid. What do you think about Metal Sucks? It sucks. <laughs> yeah, so I was just like, oh, pestilence is coming. But because of metal sucks, apparently this tour is not happening. I mean, these kind of media things, like, it's all about the buck, you know? So they, they create stuff, stir things up, I guess, to make a dollar, you know, which, which is just horse shit. I mean, come on. Metal was never about that, man. It's always about the opposite of that, you know? No drama. It's, it's it's such a drama-based kind of field, I guess, you know, because he's just like, oh, well, let's talk about this because it could just stir shit. Or, I mean, as simple as it is, okay, think about it this way. He did cancel a tour. What are people doing? They're all talking about it. Mm-hmm. That's his goal. Yeah, wait, wait, wait till he comes back, right? Yeah. He, want, he wants people to talk about it. And the fact that he does something shitty, he doesn't care that if he did something shitty. People are talking about it. It makes him a buck. And that's, I think that's just fucking really stupid to think about that way. You know, you can't, why, why, you know, metal has always been, I think, community. against it, a community, and it's been a, it's, it's a unit, you know, it's, it's a brotherhood, it's family, you know. Why do, why do we need to, why do we need to bring this drama and all this kind of mundane, normal life, guest stuff people do that 
it's, it's stuff that would never happen, you know, back in the 80s because we didn't have the internet to connect us all and to dig into people and to find that one post that that guy wrote to that guy. And there was no paper trail back in the day, really. Yeah, even in the early 90s, it was the good, the good metal years. I, that's what I consider. Today it's different. I mean, with the internet and everything, I, I think a lot more people are getting access to things, messaging and spreading messages and spreading fake news. I mean, Wikipedia, I mean, I'd go read up something and I'd laugh because half the time they're usually wrong about it. They get some things that are accurate, but some things that are wrong. Someone's like, oh, well, um, what is that on Wikipedia? It says that we're formed in 2010. Technically, (laughs) we're not. We were formed in 2009. It's just we kept silent for a year before we released the album. Uh, We were not talking to anyone. It was like in the basement recording, pre-producing the album, and we were just preparing to go in studio with Chris. That was it. But like we technically actually were formed in 2009 and not 2010. So, you know, just to give you an idea of what the internet does. The accuracy of the internet. Yeah, the accuracy. What does Aroma have coming up? You mentioned that there was a new album. Yeah, we're we're working on material. Um, We kind of had a transition in member changes. Uh, A former original member, um, Katian Pat, he decided to uh, step back, personal reasons. So we were just kind of silent, I guess, just trying to form everything. Uh, We've decided that uh, the media seemed to talk about always us being a trio. And uh, live was never a trio. (laughs) But the core of the band has always been a trio. And I think that now we've decided that the band live is a trio just as much as the trio is in the recording process and the creating uh, of the new album, too. So we're kind of actually doing that trio thing more and more. So that's we were working on the whole, how is it going to work for us or not? So we took some time to work that, and uh, I've been writing tons of material. Uh, we've been writing lyrics. We just, you know, we're just throwing down a bunch of stuff, and I, I think this is the first time that we actually took time, more likely, to do a, a record, and, and I think that they, it, it will show in the quality for sure. Uh, we, 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 we as musicians are maturing. The music itself is maturing. So, uh, yeah, we're working on a, possibly an EP. We don't know if we're going to do a full length. A lot of things uh, I would like to talk about, but we can't talk about. And eventually we will be out there and on the internet. But uh, yeah, a lot of things are happening, but uh, we usually keep silent. And once everything's ready, we just give it a big bang. That's the way to do it. You said you want to be a trio. So that's you, a guitarist and a drummer. And you want to do that live. Yeah. We did that for Inferno. You were just three dudes at Inferno. Yeah, yeah. If you check on the internet and YouTube, uh, you can get some Inferno uh, live videos of us. And we were just three. Awesome. And with the samples and everything, it's covering up everything else. Yeah. So I guess that's where people, I guess, can hear a lot more of the symphonic side that we talk about that most people are like, where? (laughs) (laughs) They could probably hear keyboards. They're like, I hear keyboards, but like symphonic, like there's that orchestration and yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening right now, um, especially for the new material. Uh, I'm very, very, very excited for that. Uh, it's it's a different, it's kind of a mold of everything we've been doing. Uh, it's going to be our fourth album. Um, we got a good new manager helping us out with things, and uh, yeah. Are you guys finished with Victory? You're moving on now? We, well, we're in the talks right now uh, about what we're doing right now, so we don't know right now. It's, we'll see. Right? We're still, as, as of what I know, we're still with them. So uh, we'll see. It's, sometimes you can just give an album. They don't want to sign the album because they don't like it. And, and they just decide they want to close the contract. And that's it. Fine by me if they want to do that. But uh, that's how it is. That's how it is. We'll shop somewhere else. We're not, we're not shy guys for that. It's not as bad as it used to be where they'll just take your album, put it on the shelf, and let you sit there and rot. Rot. Yeah. We don't want that. Yeah. yeah. Like the... Pretty much a cryptopsy career. Hey. <laughs> Central media. Oh, no, God. no, we survived. 
you survived. You we guys, survived. We moved on. Yeah, you guys went all the way to the end. Multiple uh, solo releases as of now, independent releases. One more coming up. But I, uh, yeah, but I kind of, you know, maybe one day we might be getting ourselves somewhere like that. I know there's a lot of work towards that, but I really respect the integrity that's put behind doing something like that, especially in the. How the music business is, at least how I'm seeing it today. <laughs> it's a, it's not an easy field to get into. It's, 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 it's hard to do independent because you need to surround yourself with a positive team that would take over all the roles that would be in a record label. Yeah, there, there are people to do that. You just got to like do it at the right time. That's you know? right. Yeah, it's, it's, so like eventually you figure out like you know who's the guy that can do this, who's the guy that can do that. But the, the beauty of it is the whole control of everything, you know. You don't have someone writing emails to you or you know, restraining you because you're like, hey, I, wanna, I have this fantastic idea. And they're like, yeah, well, there's no budget, so fuck you. And you're like, <laughs> so your idea is just thrown down the drain and you got to like, you know, take it into a personal financial matter, which is a bit more difficult. It's a lot of money when it comes to like video clips and stuff like that. That's so. right. Yeah. Tell me about it. So, well, thanks for meeting with me today. No problem, man. Cheers for drinking beers with me. Yes. Great. It's great. Morning Fox and hops. Yeah. yeah. It, it is early in the morning here because Gordon has night shift. Yeah. But I mean, you know, beer, it's kind of like my helping me to sleep. I guess uh, th this one will definitely help you. Yeah, I'm yeah. tasting that. One. Yeah, the Stelt Imperial Rus, the Russian Imperial Stelt from Dunhound, is going to nurse Gore to sleep. All the best. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to Vox and Hops today. Uh, I had a blast sitting down with Gore. It was early in the morning for him. Just to give you some context, he had just done like an all-night shift, and I showed up at his house, and he graciously sat down with me, had a few beers. We sat back, we laughed, we chatted. It was fun. On the next episode, I'm going to sit down with Paul Ablaze, uh, who was the singer of Blackguard. He is now the singer of a death metal band called Ages up here in Montreal. I've known Paul a really long time. It's always interesting to hang out with Paul. He always has a lot to say. If you have any suggestions, any comments, if you want to sponsor the show, shoot me a world, please, at matt at voxandhops.com. See ya. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.